0: Hello everyone, this is Stuart Haynes and welcome to the iFormerX podcast where we explore the evidence that informs ambulatory care pharmacy practice. There has been lots of great research published in the past year about the sodium glucose transporter 2 inhibitors in patients with and without type 2 diabetes, but there's another class of medications, the glucagon-like peptide 1 receptor agonists, or the GLP-1 agonists, that have also been getting a lot of positive press. Not only have some of the GLP-1 agonists been shown to have a positive impact on cardiovascular risk in patients with diabetes, but they appear to be very useful for weight loss. As any clinician knows, obesity is a major contributing factor to many of the chronic conditions that we see in practice. And unfortunately, the rate of obesity, particularly among adolescents as well as young and middle aged adults, is a major public health concern. Our modern, sedentary lifestyle and the abundant availability of food have really taken a toll on our bodies. For many patients, they feel disempowered and continue to pack on the pounds despite knowing intellectually that being overweight is unhealthy and increases the risk of diabetes and heart disease, osteoarthritis, certain cancers, and the need for orthopedic surgery. While lifestyle modification is truly the best way to lose weight and improve cardiovascular health, we clearly need better treatment options for patients who need a little help on their weight loss journey. And I think that's where the GLP-1 agonist might play a role. And here to discuss the role of the GLP-1 agonist for weight loss are Teddy Matthew and Jason Zupek from the Philadelphia College of Pharmacy at U Sciences. Dr. Matthew is a PGY-2 pharmacotherapy resident, and Dr. Zupak is a full-time member of the PCP, or Philadelphia College of Pharmacy, faculty. Dr. Matthew and Zupak wrote a commentary regarding the recently published Step 1 study, which appears in the New England Journal of Medicine in March 2021. And also joining us today is Dr. Amy Heck Sheehan from Purdue University. Dr. Sheehan is a drug information specialist and has a strong interest in the management of obesity, and she was a peer reviewer for the commentary that Dr. Matthew and Dr. Zupek authored. So, Tenny, Jason, Amy, it's great to have you all on the iFormerX podcast, all as first-time contributors. Welcome.
1: Thanks for that great introduction. I'm really excited to be here.
0: Thanks, Stuart. It's a pleasure to join you. Thanks, Stuart. Great to be here. So, before we talk about the study that you all reviewed for the iFormerX commentary, uh, I'd like to get a better sense of the contemporary management of obesity. First, what are the lifestyle behaviors that have been shown to have the greatest benefit? And why is it so difficult for people to engage in these behaviors? And second, what role, if any, should pharmacotherapy and perhaps surgery play? Well, as you've mentioned,
2: the mainstay of therapy today for obesity management is lifestyle modification. And this consists of reduced caloric intake, increased physical activity, and overall behavioral modification to help identify and eliminate the triggers that are involved in making unhealthy dietary choices. The literature has shown us that adherence, and that is the key word, Adherence to diet, exercise, and in-person behavioral counseling sessions can result in an average weight loss of about 18 pounds over a six-month period, and that would be approximately 8% of a 100-kilogram patient's body weight. The problem is that adherence to these changes is easier said than done, And requires significant effort on the part of the patient, as well as resources, including maybe access to healthy foods, which usually costs more and access to safe places to exercise. Other factors that make weight loss difficult include, as you previously mentioned, Stuart, our environment, the overabundance of highly advertised, low cost, high calorie foods that bombards us every day. And also, the advances of modern technology that we all enjoy, but have led to this more sedentary lifestyle. Additionally, patients get frustrated that there's really no quick and easy fix. Initial weight loss goals should be 5 to 10% over a six month period of time. And this equates to approximately one to two pounds per week. And rapid weight loss is usually associated with rapid weight regain. And so uh, slow and steady wins the race here. And this is really frustrating as we as a society, we want quick results. Before I talk about pharmacotherapy, I will just comment quickly on surgery as an option. Bariatric surgery is reserved for those patients with a BMI at 40 and above or 35 and above if they have a significant comorbidity. And bariatric surgery is the most effective intervention that we have today for weight loss. And this is noted in the commentary by Tenny and Jason, that bariatric surgery can result in weight loss of 10 to 27% at four years after surgery. So, surgical intervention is highly effective, but typically reserved for those with higher BMIs and comorbidities. As far as the role of pharmacotherapy, pharmacotherapy is an adjunct treatment for those patients who have failed to successfully lose weight with lifestyle modifications. And really, the the main purpose of pharmacotherapy is to help patients adhere to the dietary modifications, and that is not to take the place of these changes. Our current guidelines have set criteria for when pharmacotherapy should be considered, and this is in those patients with a BMI of 30 or BMI of 27 in the presence of a comorbidity, who have failed to reach their weight loss goal of that 10% over six months. Unfortunately, the use of weight loss medications, as we know, has had a very troubled past with many previous agents subsequently being removed from the market due to safety concerns. And the weight loss results that we have with current agents are quite modest. And at present, there are four FDA-approved agents for long-term management. And as Tenny and Jason outlined nicely in the commentary, literature shows that the overall placebo-subtracted average weight loss with pharmacotherapy ranges from 29 to 6.8%. Again, this is quite modest, especially considering that these agents are not without important side effects. It's also worth noting that most trials evaluating current weight loss drugs report a wide variability in weight loss amounts, and this likely indicates variation in the study subject's adherence to the diet and exercise recommendations. All of our current agents tend to reach a maximum weight loss at six months with weight maintenance or slow regain after that. And additionally, once the medication is stopped, we see weight regain. So there's definitely a need for more effective weight loss medications to serve as an adjunct to lifestyle modifications.
0: So, Tenny, in the commentary you wrote for iFormerX, you reviewed the study entitled Once Weekly Semaglutide in Adults with Overweight and Obesity, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, Of course, we recommend that everyone read this paper for themselves, and we provide a link to the paper on the iFormerX website, but can you give us a brief synopsis of the study methods and findings?
1: So, the STEP-1 trial was a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled study that evaluated just over 1,900 patients And it examined the role of injectable semaglutide at a higher dose than what's currently available, in addition to lifestyle modifications, so diet and exercise, for patients who are obese or overweight. And the semaglutide in the study was actually initiated at a dose of 0.25 milligrams weekly and then titrated every four weeks for a maximum dose of 2.4 milligrams weekly. Um, And these were subcutaneous injections. And in the study, the maximally tolerated dose was achieved at week 16. The trial included patients who were over the age of 18 with a BMI of 30 or greater or a BMI of 27 or greater with at least one weight-related comorbidity. The study excluded, however, patients with diabetes, those with a history of chronic or acute pancreatitis, prior surgical intervention for weight management, and if patients were treated with any other medication for weight management, Interestingly enough, the study had two co-primary endpoints. These were the change in body weight percentage and the amount of patients who achieved at least 5% weight loss. So the study found that there was significantly more patients who achieved at least a 5% weight loss with semaglutide compared to placebo, and that was 86% versus 32% and a mean placebo-subtracted weight loss of 12.44% associated with semaglutide.
0: So Jason, the authors in this study report a primary estimand and I'm wondering what an estimand is and whether all clinical trials should be reporting a primary estimand. The authors also report a number of secondary endpoints and I'm wondering if any of these secondary or exploratory endpoints suggest whether there are any benefits from semaglutide use beyond weight loss?
3: So, estimates are a precisely defined measure of treatment effect. Essentially, it's a new framework that helps create a common language to align the estimated treatment effect with the study objectives and the design of the study. It's a little bit of an evolution of the PICO model that we're familiar with, population, intervention, comparison or control, uh, and outcome. And they have five uh, attributes. Many of them are similar to the PICO model. Uh, So S-Demands have a population, a treatment, a variable or endpoint, a summary measure, including a statistical approach, for example, uh, difference in mean weight. Um, But the biggest difference is the last attribute, which are intercurrent events. And these are events that happen after participants are randomized in a study and might affect the interpretation of the variable. So in a study like this, that might be treatment discontinuation, changes in participant diet or exercise habits, uh, cessation of tobacco use, or missing data, such as weight measurements. Uh, The investigators need to determine which intercurrent events are relevant for their estimate and then how they would handle their data collection and analysis. Uh, They may include just one uh, primary estimate or might define multiple. So these estimates do more than just create a common language, but also contribute to changing the way clinical trials are designed, data is collected and analyzed, and ultimately interpreted. I suspect that clinical trials will continue to move towards reporting primary estimates as they're more specific and ensure that context is explicitly provided for their main results. As well, That regulatory authorities such as the FDA may require those uh, in the future. For a practicing pharmacists, I think it's important to pay attention to those intercurrent events and how those are managed uh, within the study to interpret the results. So in step one, uh, they used a treatment policy strategy to handle those intercurrent events for their primary S-demand um, in which their primary results are based on. Uh, and essentially, they analyzed that like a traditional intention-to-treat analysis. They did also have a secondary S-demand, and many of those results are in their uh, supplement where they used a trial product or hypothetical strategy in which they assume that participants remained on treatment for the entire study duration without rescue interventions like other medications or metabolic surgery. So by incorporating estimates, this study more transparently describes how the results are calculated. Regarding the step one secondary endpoints, um, beyond the primary endpoints related to weight loss, the semaglutide arm had a greater improvement in waist circumference, A1c, systolic blood pressure, as well as lipid markers. And certainly, you know, weight loss will help with all of these secondary markers, um, but we also might anticipate the mechanism of GLP-1 agonists uh, have an impact on glycemia, on renal sodium excretion, on fatty acid absorption. Um, and so from this study, it's not quite clear how significantly the mechanism of GLP-1s specifically contributed above weight loss alone. Um, Certainly, we know the the more weight loss, uh, the greater benefits on these markers. I think it's also important to note that cardiovascular risk uh, wasn't measured in this study, uh, but we might expect that that could be impacted as well based on previous studies with semaglutide and other GLP-1 agonists uh, in the treatment of type 2 diabetes, and future studies will be addressing the cardiovascular risk.
0: All right. So, every study has strengths and weaknesses and potential limitations. Do you have any concerns about the design and conduct of this study? Are there any potential confounders that might have impacted the results? And do you think the patient population that was enrolled in this study is representative of the kind of patients we'd most likely offer this kind of treatment in practice to?
1: So, Overall, the step one was a well-designed randomized control trial. It is important to note that some patients were excluded, like those with diabetes. And at first glance, that might be a big patient population that would benefit from weight loss, but it also speaks to the internal validity of the study that these patients were evaluated separately. The study also had a very high study completion rate, which once again would reaffirm that internal validity. And additionally, there were several secondary endpoints that Jason alluded to that would significantly be impacted by weight loss that were included. So things like lipid biomarkers and systolic and diastolic blood pressure readings, as well as changes in glycemia for pre-diabetic patients. The study also evaluated subjectively physical function scores of patients and alluded a little bit to the more subjective benefits that weight loss might have. Specifically, the patient population in the study was a majority consisting of white women with a BMI of around 37 without diabetes. So while it might not be representative of most of the patients with obesity, it likely provides a better picture of who might be seeking treatment and who might also benefit from this treatment.
3: Uh, Like Amy mentioned earlier, uh, where adherence is very important to lifestyle modifications and medications to achieve weight loss, this trial likely enrolled participants who are highly motivated uh, to achieve those lifestyle and medication goals. And this might be difficult to implement in real-world practice consistently, but again highlights the importance of um, robust and consistent lifestyle modifications to achieve outcomes similar to what was seen in this study. The patient population enrolled likely represents patients who would seek treatment. We also need to be mindful of health disparities uh, in populations in the United States as it relates to obesity, who may not have been as highly representative in this study, for example, uh, African-American or Hispanic-American patients. Uh, We also know that adolescent obesity is a growing problem as well. step one really addresses treatment for adults Um, We might anticipate studies forthcoming in the future that uh, might address treatment uh, in adolescents as other GLP-1 agonists have indications for ages 12 and up.
2: I agree with with the comments made by Tenny and Jason, and I think one potential strength of this study compared to maybe other studies that evaluate weight loss drugs is that about 75% of the participants did have at least one comorbidity at baseline. And so we are looking at a population that is likely to have comorbidities. And I also appreciated the fact that, that patients with prediabetes were included in the study as well.
0: So let's talk about the bottom line. The results of this study suggest that the semaglutide had a substantial and sustained impact on weight loss. Should the GLP-1 agonist be offered to more patients? I think most clinicians have been kind of reluctant to prescribe, and insurers have been reluctant to pay for weight loss agents, and their use has been very restricted by most insurers. Does this study open the door to more patients being potential candidates? And if so, are there any real differences among the GLP-1 agonists? Should we preferentially recommend semaglutide, or any of these agents would do?
3: So we're awaiting FDA approval for this dose and indication uh, at the time of this recording, but now uh, multiple agents in this class are showing weight loss benefits at higher doses than um, are used for the treatment of diabetes. Now, we don't have studies yet that show results head-to-head compared to other GLP-1 agonists or compared to other medications, but based on the results in step one, semaglutide has potentially the greatest weight loss benefits and a greater duration of weight loss or time to nadir uh, in weight. So in step one, about 15 months compared to most other medications, about six, maybe seven months for other medications uh, versus much longer for metabolic surgery.
1: And in step one, semaglutide certainly appears to be stepping up the game for obesity, and if approved and covered by payers, this higher dose of semaglutide could certainly impact weight management more than we ever could before with other agents, as we previously alluded to. While long-term results are still yet to be determined longer than the 68-week period, a significant amount of patients within the trial did achieve at least 20% weight loss, and this certainly is a competitive option even compared to metabolic surgery. Additionally, there are several upcoming studies that will continue to report the effects that semaglutide might have, including in patients with diabetes, cardiovascular risk outcomes, as well as a head-to-head study with liraglutide. And these upcoming trials will certainly help best inform our decisions on which agent might be preferential, if any. So there's certainly more coming soon.
0: Well, Jason, Tenney, Amy, I want to thank all of you for joining me today to discuss the treatment of obesity and the use of the GLP-1 agonist semaglutide, for weight loss. I think it's clear from your comments that you believe the GLP-1 agonists really do result in very significant weight loss, better than most of the agents that we've had available to us over the years, and potentially rival what we can achieve with a metabolic surgery. So I think there's a real potential here for using this class of agents to help our patients lose weight. Well, tell us what you think. Should we be using the GLP-1 agonists to treat obesity and treat obesity more often pharmacologically? Does the use of weight loss drug give patients a positive start to their weight loss journey? Or do they reinforce the false notion that drugs can fix everything. Only iFormRx members can leave comments and use the interactive features on our website. Membership in iFormRx is open to all health professionals, so sign up today. It's free. And if you are a board-certified ambulatory care pharmacist and want to earn recertification and continuing education credit for this program, you can. iFormRx content is available through the American Pharmacists Association's Board Prep and Recertification Program. Click on the link posted below the commentary on our website to learn more. And lastly, I want to extend a very special thank you to Caitlin Calton and Jamie Wagner from the University of Mississippi for writing a very fine summary of the recently released American College of Physicians best practice advice on the use of short course, antibiotics for common infections. Caitlin is a fourth-year doctor of pharmacy student, and Jamie is one of my colleagues here at the University of Mississippi. The article was very timely, well-researched, and well-written, so thank you, Caitlin, for taking on this extra assignment, and thank you, Jamie, for being a great mentor. If you're willing to mentor a student and want to write a news article for iFormerX about a recently released practice-changing guideline or report, send me an email And until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, Editor-in-Chief of iFormerX, signing off.